0: In the immortal words of Big Bird, one of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you remember that oh so important scene from Sesame Street where Big Bird was looking over four bowls of bird seed which he desired to eat, and three of the bowls were small, one was big. The irony is that there is similarity and dissimilarity in that precious scene with Big Bird. Uh, Yes, there were different sized bowls of birdseed, but they were all bowls of birdseed. And by now, you're no doubt wondering, what does this have to do with the book of Amos? Or perhaps you're wondering what letter of uh, the day it is today. It's A, uh, of course. Here, here's the point to that silly introduction. Um, what we're going to see in the book of Amos is that Israel, the people of God, that Israel is just like the nations surrounding her, but that it should not be. The, the people of God were called, are called, to be distinct from the world around them. They were supposed to display what it meant to follow the one true God and to love His people. And this is no less the calling of the people of God today. This morning, we're especially looking at Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the passage. If you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage on page 765, 765. And while you're turning there to Amos chapter 2, let me uh, remind us of some of what we considered over the past few weeks. Amos uh, was a prophet of God. He was a man that God raised up to speak His word to His people. And previous to serving the Lord as a prophet, Amos was a shepherd and farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah. You might have a map there on the insert in your bulletin. You can see that Judah is below uh, Israel. Judah was from the south. Well, the Lord called this shepherd from the south to deliver a message to the kingdom of Israel in the north. At this point in biblical history, for more than 150 years, the people of God have been divided into these two kingdoms, into Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. At, at the time of Amos' ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel is deeply entrenched in sinful patterns, and it, it's Amos's responsibility to tell Israel that because of her sin, she will be carried off into exile. The Israelites will be thrust out of their lands because of their sin, just like Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden because of their sin. And last week, we we studied the, the lead-up to the announcement of the Lord's uh, judgment uh, on uh, the Lord's displeasure with Israel. In particular, we studied the announcement of the Lord's judgment on the nations surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel. What the northern kingdom of Israel didn't know is that Amos was actually setting them up in those six judgment oracles. So we're we're going to study Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16, under two headings. Judah's judgment and Israel's indictment. Judah's judgment and Israel's indictment. if you're taking uh, notes this morning, those are the two points that are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Uh, Let's turn now and consider our first point, Judah's Judgment, Judah's judgment. And here we're looking at verses 4 and 5, chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the uh, larger number, 2, with the verses uh, being the smaller numbers there, verses 4 and 5. And let me just say a, f- a few things before we read those verses in particular. We thought a little bit about this last week, uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that when Amos first came to the people of the northern kingdom, that's who he's speaking to, so he's not speaking to Judah when he speaks these words. When he, when he speaks these words, he's speaking to the the kingdom, and, and they no doubt looked upon him with skepticism and suspicion. Uh, they, they must have been thinking to themselves, what is this guy, this low-life shepherd, this farmer from the south, doing up here in the north speaking to us? Um, but then when he speaks, he starts talking about the nations surrounding the people of Israel, and about how they're to face judgment. and And the people of Israel must have thought to themselves, this is great. The Lord's going to judge all of our enemies. Maybe I'm going to listen to this guy from Judah for a little bit longer. And Amos, he worked his way through the six nations surrounding Israel, and then he did something surprising. He turned to address a seventh nation, Judah, his own homeland. So here he is. He's come out of his homeland to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's saying, yeah, the the people back home, they're, they're in a world of trouble too. And take a look at what Amos says about Judah in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Read those verses. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So... I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This oracle from the Lord follows the same pattern and formula from the previous six oracles. Amos begins with the Lord speaking and announcing the transgression of the nation. He then declares that the nation will be judged, why they will be judged, how they will be judged. Like the previous oracles, it's a divine declaration. There's a thus says the Lord it uses the three and then four literary device, like it did in the previous oracles, to communicate that Judah has outdone herself in wickedness and that it can no longer be tolerated. And like the six previous oracles, there's a, there's a double statement con- concerning the punishment. The Lord says something uh, negative about the punishment, namely that he will not revoke it. And then he says something positive about the punishment, namely that he will punish, that he will send a fire and it shall devour so both ways of speaking about the Lord's punishment reveal that the punishment is certain. Negatively, that it cannot be escaped. Positively, that it will surely happen. There is, however, a striking difference between this oracle and the oracles that have gone before. The, the difference is found in the terrible transgression that Judah has committed. The, the six previous nations were guilty of murdering innocent men. Uh, barbarity and war. They were guilty of slave trading and killing the most defenseless in society, killing pregnant women and the children in their wombs. The six previous oracles found the nations guilty of inhumanity, of hatred of life that God had created. Judah's crime, though, is announced in different language. Where the six previous nations were guilty of violence against their neighbors, Judah is pronounced as guilty of rejecting the law of the Lord, of not Keeping his statutes. Now, this could have certainly included failing to love their neighbors. They could have been guilty of dealing inhumanely with those around them, because that's certainly the fruit of rejecting the law of the Lord and failing to keep his statutes. But that is not how Judah's transgression is announced here. Unlike those nations, Judah did have God's word, they were God's people, and they had God's explicit commands on those subjects and many others. The nations knew of God's law in their hearts, but Judah not only had God's law in their hearts being made in His image, but they also had it in their hands because He delivered it to them. They were privileged in that sense. God's law was a a gracious gift to them, and they rejected it. While the crimes of the nations were certainly crimes against the Lord, Amos kind of held off on describing them so explicitly. He held off on describing them in, in those terms so that when we get to Judah and Judas crimes we feel the force of just how directly Judas transgressions were aimed at God and we see just how personal this transgression is when we ask the question what does it mean for Judah to have rejected the law of the Lord and to have not kept his statutes and those are really two ways of saying the same thing each statement kind of sheds light on the other and illuminates its meaning When we read that Judah rejected the law of the Lord, we should think to ourselves, they did not keep his statutes. And and when we we read that uh, Judah did not keep his statutes, we should think, well, they rejected the law of the Lord. In principle, this transgression is fairly easy to describe. Judah failed to trust and obey God, they failed to believe that what God said was true. And that the way in which He called them to walk was for their good and for His glory. This is deeply personal. To reject the law of the Lord is to reject Him. Because God reveals His own character in His law. In His law He reveals that He is trustworthy and true. And that His word is trustworthy and true. When you fail to believe that what God says is true, all that you're left with is lies. And when you exchange the truth of God for a lie, how can you not be led astray like Judah was? How can you not fall into the pit of worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator? Was it not the same in the garden? Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for the lie of a serpent. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for glorifying themselves. They did not walk in God's way. And so they were forced to walk out of God's garden. They had been led astray. In order to keep from being led astray, we must continue to turn our ears toward the Word of God. After all, in Psalm 119, we're told that God's Word is a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. That tells us a lot about the world we live in, doesn't it? It's a dark and dangerous world. It is easy to be led astray, to go off of the path. And so we need the light of God's Word. We must pursue the light of God's Word. We must endeavor to listen to our Father personally as individual Christians and corporately as a church. And we must not do it selectively. That's why we study a book like Amos. Uh, God gave us 66 books of the Bible for a reason. He wants us to read and benefit from them all. Why? Why would we seek to limit the light that God is endeavoring to shine on our path through His Word? Ezekiel Hopkins once said that the Bible is the statute book of God's kingdom, wherein is comprised the whole body of heavenly law, the perfect rules of a holy life, and the sure promises of a glorious one. Hearing God's Word is the most important thing that we do when we gather for corporate worship. And listening to God's word itself is an act of worship. When we gather for worship, we want to digest as much of God's word as we reasonably can. And that's why in our services, the words, uh, we, we want to hear God's word as often as possible. Uh, in the words of, of Ligon Duncan, we want to read the Bible and preach the Bible and pray the Bible and sing the Bible and see the Bible in the ordinances in baptism in the Lord's Supper. May we never reject God's Word, for it is His gracious gift to guide and guard us from harm. Well, in verse 5, we return to something we've seen before. In the six previous judgment oracles, the Lord has used the same language of sending a fire and it devouring the strongholds. That's, that, that Judah's judgment is just like the nation's judgment tells us something. In God's eyes, Judah is just like the other nation's. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be distinct from the nations, not like the others. They were supposed to be a blessing to the nations, to use the words of Moses. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, to use the words of Isaiah. But they had become just like the nations and worthy of the same punishment that the nations deserved. God's people are to be different from the nations surrounding them. And part of what keeps us distinct from the world around us is holding fast to the word of life, to God's word. Believing God's word, trusting and obeying God's word is how we keep our saltiness, as Jesus said. As we personally hold fast to God's word, God holds on to us. Well, having considered Judah's judgment, let's turn now and consider our second point, Israel's indictment. And this is the second point that we want to consider together this morning, Israel's indictment. Here we're looking at Amos chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. And again, before we read those verses, I kind of want to reset the scene for us. Because what Amos has just done in verses 4 and 5 was surprising. He just condemned the people of his own homeland. And one can only imagine the kind of reaction that he will receive when he returns home. We know how word travels, and it often travels faster than we do. That may have been the case with Amos. Amos has just condemned the seven nations surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel. And in ancient Hebrew literature, seven was often symbolic of um, wholeness, completeness. So after hearing these seven oracles of judgment from Amos, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel would have almost certainly thought that Amos was done with pronouncing judgment. They would have thought to themselves, well, that was nice. Uh, and, And they would have been expecting... For him to pivot from offering oracles of judgment to offering an oracle of salvation for Israel, for the northern kingdom. Uh, That's typically how these speeches are supposed to work. And you see that in other places in the Old Testament. Once the judgment oracles are completed, they're typically followed by a salvation oracle for the people who are being addressed. Israel enjoyed hearing about the sins of others, no doubt. And they probably didn't think that theirs would be addressed. This happens in our lives too, doesn't it, children? Uh, children, I, I wonder, is there a part of you that is happy when your sibling gets into trouble? Have you ever giggled when your brother or sister or your classmate um, got caught for doing something wrong? That's probably what Israel was doing, kind of giggling. Ha! Look at these, look at these nations. They're gonna, they're gonna get it from God. That's what was going on. That's probably how Israel was reacting, and. And this is often how we react when others are caught and condemned. Children, we should all be humble and quick to recognize that we too are sinners and deserving of condemnation. We should pray for those who do wrong. And we should pray that God would give us grace to turn to Him in our sin and to seek Him for mercy. Children, let me encourage you to ask your parents this afternoon, how about you should react how should you react when you hear about the sins of others? That'd be a good conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. As we prepare to hear Amos' next words, put yourselves in the shoes of the people of the Northern Kingdom. Amos has just condemned all of your enemies, which you are undoubtedly happy about. He's drawn you in. He's gone through the complete cycle of seven And you are expecting now to hear good news about your kingdom. Now read what Amos says in verses 6 to 16. Amos says, Thus says the Lord, For the three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine, drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and whose... was as strong as the oaks I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath and it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite and I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites is it not indeed so O people of Israel declares the Lord but you made the Nazarite to drink wine And commanded the prophet, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Surprise! This is not a message of salvation for the people of Israel. They were not expecting this. This was an indictment. This shepherd wasn't as low and slow as they thought. He was a master teacher. He got the people of Israel to sympathize with him, to agree with his message. He got them to see the transgressions that the nations committed, and he got them to agree with the Lord that they were indeed transgressions. And what they didn't know is that their agreement with Amos on the transgressions of the nations would necessarily mean that if they were to be consistent, then they would have to agree with him about their own transgressions. Now you'll recognize, I'm sure, the similarities of this judgment oracle to the previous ones. It too begins with an announcement that the Lord is speaking, uh, thus says the Lord. It too uh, uses the three and then four literary device to communicate Israel's wickedness. But there's striking differences between this oracle and the previous seven. One of these things is not like the other. And what's the biggest difference? It's length. You can tell right away that this isn't one of those two or three-verse oracles. This isn't small-time stuff. This, this isn't a small-time judgment oracle. This is a big-time judgment oracle. This is a ten-verse judgment oracle. It's much longer, far more intense. God has saved His best for last or worst, depending on your perspective. And the sins that Amos enumerates are far more numerous than that of the previous nations. Another difference is that in this oracle... Is that Israel's history with God is recounted? None of the oracles, none of the other oracles included a history of the nation's relationship with God. Also, the just judgment that is threatened is again longer than the previous nations. I want us to take a look at each of these things to look at the transgressions, the history, and the punishment. So let's take a look uh, at Israel's transgressions first. We see Israel's terrible transgressions recounted in verses 6 to 8 and there in verse 12. In verses 6 to 8, Amos names a number of sins in these verses. First, he says, the people of Israel sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This first charge is the people of Israel are perverting justice um, by, by bribing judges and so seeing the innocent condemned. What's the connection with the pair of sandals? Well, it seems that the righteous had incurred some debt. It's a small and almost inconsequential amount of debt, uh, amounting to uh, that about the cost of a pair of sandals. Wicked Israelites, Amos tells us, are forcing the conviction of innocent men and selling them into slavery in order to pay their debts, even if their debts amount to something as inexpensive as a pair of sandals. This transgression may include to the transgressions of Tyre and the Philistines, who were guilty of the wicked practice of commercial slave trade, in Amos chapter 1, verse 6, and in verse 9. What is really going on is certain men in Israel are power hungry, entitled, and harsh towards others. You you, you only deal so unmercifully with others when you set yourself up as God to rule over the lives of others. The indictment builds, too, by maintaining the kind of foot connection moving from sandals to trampling we from sandals to trampling others underfoot. In verse 7, Israel is accused of trampling the poor and the dust of the earth. And this trampling may allude to that of the transgression of Syria, who threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. In Amos chapter 1, verse 3. That Israel turns aside the way of the afflicted is disappointing, to say the least, because here Israel's low value on human life is being underscored. The needy among them are simply being disregarded and pushed aside. There's a sense of arrogance in Israel's stride. A sense of, I don't want anything to do with that person because they don't swim in my stream. They're not a part of the slice of society that I'm a part of. The people of God in the Old Testament were to care for the poor among them. The covenant community was to see to it that those within their community were cared for. God gave laws and provisions to make sure they were protected and well cared for. But here Israel is disregarding God's laws. God says something about caring for the poor in the New Testament too. In the context of the New Testament church, the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, that if you have the world's goods and your brother is in need, but you close your heart to him, then God's love is really not in your heart. John wonders if you're really saved if you don't open your heart to the poor in your church to care for your covenant community. As a congregation, we want to care for the needy among us. And that's why in our members meeting today, you'll notice a line item in the proposed budget entitled Benevolence. Those resources in the Benevolence line go toward helping members of our congregation who are in need. That's a practical, physical way of caring for those who are in need among us. But we also need to do more. Because this isn't just a physical, behavioral matter. This is a heart matter. We need to make sure that our hearts are oriented toward loving those who are not just like us. We need to make sure that we're ready to sacrifice, care for, and love those who are difficult to love because the truth is, is that we're all difficult to love. And we want others to love us too. We, we want to guard our hearts against strident categories of, I can't relate to that person, we're nothing alike, I'm, I'm just going to avoid them altogether. Praise God that Jesus never did that with sinners. He was holy. We are vile. And yet he came for us to love us. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be best buds with uh, the believers who are very different from you. It doesn't mean you have to spend every waking moment with them. But within the church, ostracizing sheep is unacceptable. Perhaps even unchristian. As soon as we begin to think to ourselves that we are fundamentally different than others and inherently better than others, we set ourselves on Israel's path, the path of disregarding fellow members of the covenant community. And let's be honest, sometimes we all do that. Due to indwelling sin, the seeds of superiority are in all of our hearts. In humility, we need to recognize that if God has set his love upon another brother or sister in Christ, then we should too. Israel's indictment is fairly uncomfortable already, but things turn even more uncomfortable halfway through verse 7 when the Lord indicts the men of Israel for sexual morality. A man and his father go into the same girl. And here Amos may be referencing the sins that are forbidden in Leviticus 18 or elsewhere in the Old Testament. Whatever the case may be, whatever situation precisely Amos uh, is addressing here, one thing is clear the gift of of sexual intimacy is intended by God to be constrained to one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. Multiple partners is not permissible under God's law. And what is more, the Lord says that this profanes His holy name. Notice here that illicit intimacy presupposes a norm. And that norm is marriage between one man and one woman. The Lord's displeasure with the transgression in this verse makes no sense unless that norm exists. And it does exist. And as I said, illicit intimacy presupposes a norm. Marriage between one man and one woman. Better yet, it presupposes the God who laid down that norm. And I'm sure you know this, but our culture does indeed believe that there are norms in the realm of sexual ethics. Our culture will say that there are bounds and boundaries in this area. That there are some things that should not be done and are wrong. There is a rule or a norm that they are working from. It's not God's norm, but it is a norm. Our culture despises Christian teaching on marital intimacy because from their perspective it's too restrictive. But more than this, our culture despises Christian teaching on marital intimacy because they don't get to establish the norms. Put simply, we all want to be king and determine how we live our lives. And truth be told, we don't like being told how to live. But that's exactly what God does. He does it for our protection, for our blessing, for our good. And much to our surprise, He actually does it for our pleasure and our enjoyment too. In this raging cultural discussion, the real question is, will we recognize that God is really king? That He really does have the right to tell His creation how they are to live and love? Or will we declare our independence from God to our own peril? That is not just a question that our culture should face as a whole, but it is a question that we unavoidably face in our lives each day. Whose wisdom will I follow? Will I declare by my actions that I know better than God? Or will I humbly recognize the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God, the God who made this world and who made me to live in it, will I recognize that He knows better than I do? It's an issue of humility in many ways. And this, strikingly, is personal to God. Your intimate life is not private. God sees it. And it's, it's not as though it has nothing to do with Him when in fact it has everything to do with Him when God saw Israel's illicit intimacy, He said, by your immorality, my holy name is profane. This has something to do with me, God told the people of Israel. You see, you either curse God in your sex life or you bless Him. You either profane His name or you honor it. You either recognize that He is king or declare yourself to be king. Israel was guilty of profaning the name of the Lord, just like the nations around her. And while the sins of six and seven, verses 6 and 7 reveal a disregard for the holy name of God in the areas of law, commerce, care for the poor, and intimate relationships, in verse 8, Amos shows us how that disregard takes other forms too, particularly religious forms. Instead of having no other gods before the one true God as the first commandment requires, the people of Israel were guilty of laying themselves aside sat- Laying themselves down beside, look at that word, every altar. They would go to pagan altars. And they would go to God's altar. And instead of God's ways describing, defining, and directing their worship, their desires were describing, defining, and directing their worship. How could it be others otherwise when they had so rejected God's prophets? That's what we see in verse 12. It's a sin akin to Judah's sin. The people of Israel not only compelled men to drink wine who had taken a vow to abstain from the consumption of alcohol, they even commanded God's spokesmen to remain quiet. They they didn't want Nazarites, men who were committed to personal holiness, to remain committed to holiness. They wanted to lead them into sin that they were committing. The people of Israel didn't want the Nazarites' pursuit of personal holiness, their example, to condemn their consciences by example. And the people of Israel didn't want prophets announcing their unrighteousness, so they silenced them. God's loving pursuit of his people, his His gentle call for the people of Israel to be holy by personal example, the, the Nazarites, and by powerful words, the prophets, was thus suppressed. This is how you silence your opponents and you set your own conscience at rest. You eliminate holy examples by inviting them to live in the same immorality that you live in. That way when they they speak to you, you could say, well, but, but who are you to judge? You did the same thing. It's effective, and it is wicked. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to silence our consciences. We must be careful not to disregard holy examples. We must be careful not to silence those who speak God's truth to us. Our consciences and loving Christians who call us on to holiness are gifts of God to us. He's showing us that He loves us by sending people to speak to us and live holy lives before us. We should treasure these brothers and sisters and listen to them, for God has given them to us in part to guard us from transgressing His laws and profaning His holy name. Now, Israel wasn't merely guilty of transgressions against their neighbors like the surrounding nations. They were guilty of ungodly transgressions against their own people. And Israel wasn't merely guilty of rejecting the law of the Lord like Judah was. They were guilty of compelling godly men and commanding godly men to stop speaking on God's behalf. Yes, they rejected God's law and they called others to reject God's law with them. These things should not be. And they should especially not be given the history of Israel's relationship with God. This is what I want us to think about for the next few moments, Israel's relationship with God. In verses 9 through 11, the Lord recounts just a few of the ways that He has shown grace and mercy to the people of Israel over the course of their history. In verse 9, we're reminded that uh, that when the people of Israel were making their way into the promised land of Canaan, when God was giving the land to them as a gift in the midst of their conquest, it was He who went before them and destroyed the Amorites. If you were to read through the book of Joshua this afternoon, great thing to do with your afternoon, by the way. If you were to read through the book of Joshua this afternoon, you would see that every one of the victories that Israel achieves in that book is a direct result of the mighty hand of God. When we think of Israel's transgressions and God's gift of the land, we're left to wonder, is this really how you show your gratefulness to God? God's generous gift of the promised land is not all that Amos recounts here. In verse 10, Amos reminds the people of Israel that God rescued them from the land of Egypt. For years they had been enslaved in Egypt, and God, through 10 miraculous plagues, set them free and single handedly defeated the entire Egyptian army. And if that were not enough, God was faithful to walk with his people for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. And when we think of Israel's transgressions, God's gift of freedom from slavery and His personal presence with His people in the wilderness, we're left to wonder, is this, is this really how you show your gratefulness to God? In, in verse 11, the Lord reminds His people of another gracious gift. He sent godly men to the people of Israel. How would Israel know the ways in which God wanted them to walk? Well, through godly men like the Nazarites and the prophets. The Nazarites would display in their lives what it meant to trust and obey the Lord. And the prophets would deliver God's personal word to His people. God never left them without a witness to His will and His way. The land was a gift. Their freedom from slavery was a gift. And God's word was a gift. All of the nations of all of the nations on the earth. Israel should have been a nation should have been a grateful and obedient nation to God. Instead, Israel began to despise God and His gracious gifts, just like the nations around them. And in Israel's history, Christians can see a faint reflection of their own. Has has not God sent messengers to us to proclaim good news? Has not God rescued us from slavery to sin through Jesus Christ? Has not God promised us... A heavenly land. And sent Jesus on ahead to conquer it for us. Through his cross and resurrection. Has not God walked with us. In the wilderness of this world. By the Holy Spirit. We are very much like Israel. But may we also be very different. From the Israel that Amos was speaking to. May the Lord be pleased by his grace. To fill our hearts with thanks all that he has done for us in christ and may he give us joyful willing and obedient hearts to him it's not difficult to see why the lord might be displeased with his people in fact as you can see in verses 13 to 16 the lord expresses his displeasure by threatening judgment so here we're looking at israel's just judgment the lord's judgment of israel is perfectly suited to her misdeeds Israel had pressed down the righteous, the poor, and the needy, and so the Lord would press Israel down. And the list running from verses 14 to 16, the list naming the various kinds of people in Israel, the swift, the strong, the mighty, the warrior, the runner, the cavalry, and the stout of heart, this list is given to show us the the comprehensive sense of God's judgment. All of those who are in positions of power and who have been abusing their power, rather than using their power for good, will not escape God's judgment. Several times in that list, we're told that these people will not be able to save themselves. Perhaps, perhaps they thought that they could. They've been using their power to build themselves up. But on a day appointed by God for judgment, the Lord will strip them of all of their power and press them down. As we've reflected on Israel's transgressions, I trust that we've seen some of our own. And if Israel was worthy of judgment, then so are we. It's kind of heavy to think about, isn't it? I think that Israel was supposed to feel the weight of their sins as they hurt Amos. And I think that in reflecting on this text, we are supposed to feel the weight of our sins too. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the story of God's dealings with Israel does not stop here. The good news is that God promised the people of Israel that He would send a Messiah, a Redeemer, who would die for the sins of His people. And not just for the people of Israel, but for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. God promised that He would send His very own Son to die for the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth to rescue sinners like you and me. And He lived the life that none of us have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Where we have been sinful, He has been sinless. And though He was perfectly sinless, without sin, He went to the cross and He took upon Himself the judgment, the sins and the punishment due to the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. Jesus Christ died under the judgment of God so that sinners like you and me might know mercy and grace from God. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that God's judgment has been carried out and His justice satisfied. Jesus invites us to know the mercy and favor of God. He calls us to escape His judgment and believe that Jesus was judged for us. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Him in faith today. You need Him because you need mercy from God you need to escape the judgment that your sins deserve that my sins deserve you and I are just like the ancient people of Israel we have disregarded and disobeyed God's word and we are in danger of facing his just judgment but the good news is that we can escape God's judgment through faith in Jesus Christ friend turn from your sins and come to Jesus Christ in faith today and if you want to know more about what that means what it means to follow and trust in Christ, and do please find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. There's nothing more important that you can think about this morning than this good news that Jesus saves sinners like you and me, like the ancient people of Israel and the nations surrounding Israel. Well, we should conclude. This morning we've considered how the ancient people of God failed in their calling to reflect the character of the one true God to the nations surrounding them. The reality is that This is our calling today. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called to display God's character to the nations. And by God's grace and in His good provision, He has given us His Holy Spirit to aid us in this task. We will falter and we will fail. We will sin. But He will not let this world be left without a witness to His name. He has ordained that in the words of the Apostle Paul, the church of Jesus Christ should make known the manifold wisdom of God. And may He be pleased to use our congregation and us to that end. Let's pray together.